Good morning. It's good to be together this morning. Amen. Hey, before we get into the message today, uh, some of you received an email from me this week uh, with some news, some family transition news. Um, if you are actually are not on that email and you want to know kind of what's going on in the life of our church, every week I send out a devotional thought and just give some direction to us as a body and then what's coming up uh, on our calendar. If you want to be a part of that, you want that email, um, you can fill one of these out and on the bottom it says, I would like to sign up for email updates. Check that and we'll make sure you're on it. Um, I'm going to invite Kenneth and Kayla to come up uh, with their fam. Uh, give them a hand as they come. We've been in a, a conversation for, for some time now, uh, praying and discerning together. And uh, Kenneth will be, well, Kenneth has been our worship director for six years now, uh, carrying that part of our ministry. And we have been so blessed by who he is, uh, not only in caring for our teams, but just leading us in the heart of worship. Some of you might not know this, but some of the songs we sing, Kenneth actually has written. And so he's been a gift to us that way as well. Uh, this season, it, there's a new chapter beginning and a clap, chapter clothing. So I'm clothing, closing. So I'm going to let him share because I can't talk. Yeah. We didn't bring the kids up last year, so we'll see how this goes. But, um, just wanted to say thank you. <laughs> thank you to this community. Honestly, it's been so much growth for me in my life and so much life just had in the last six years. Um, you know, we got married, we had two kids, we bought a house. It's just so much that we've done with this community and I'm just thankful for that. So thank you. Um, back in May, if you guys recall, um, at the beginning of May, we took a little bit of a break. Um, when you're doing this ministry thing, you kind of just truck along and you try and stay faithful and you forget sometimes to take a break. So I did that in May. Um, and it lasted for about a month into June. And just in that, um, you know, I was expecting to come back out of it just very refreshed and re-inspired for another six years of ministry. And it just became really clear really quickly that God was doing something different in my heart. And so with that became, um, came conversations with Kayla and Drew and the team of um, what that season would look like. And it became very clear that a season of uh, rest and healing and time with my family and creativity even that's inspired by it all um, was a season that we were headed into so um that began conversations that um about what it would look like to step down as the worship pastor here at living word church and i just want to I, I said this last time too and it's there's nothing wrong here right there's nothing wrong between me and drew nothing wrong between me and the team uh they've been with me in my prayers they've been with me in my processing they've supported everything that i've decided to do um there's nothing wrong here. This is just a step in obedience. And if I am to live any type of life that these two boys get to look up to, I hope to exemplify just seeking the voice of God. So this is just me trying to do that. That's something that, yeah. That's, that's something that, yeah. I know that, I know that to be, I know that to be true uh, of you because we've, done ministry not just here in this context but even before so it's been close to a decade of serving the lord together and you have always fallen into jesus and everything that you're doing and discerning his heart for you and for your family and i i've seen him work in power in that in your life over the years and believe the same thing for this season for you guys 
that this might be the close of this chapter, but it's something new that the Lord's going to birth in you. Uh, and I pray, and I want to pray together as a church family that that your passion and your desire for even writing and the creative side of who you are would flourish in these next years. Uh, that that there would be even more worship songs created for the body of Christ as a whole that would serve and bless uh, the community of faith. So will you join me in praying for Kenneth and Kayla? Jesus, we uh, come before you now and we consider uh, ground like this to be holy because you have spoken and we're responding to you. Uh, and I thank you for Kenneth's obedience and, and Kayla and their family as they've discerned your voice and said, uh, it's time to move into something new. God, I pray that you would bless their obedience, that, that you would fill them uh, with your love and your joy, and that you would resource them and supply beyond what they could imagine as they've taken a step in trusting you. Lord, bless them. Bless Kenneth and, and his gifting, and the way that you've wired him and created him. I pray for a special anointing in this time, uh, that your spirit would work in power uh, in his life. Grace them. Draw them together. Uh, bond them in your love. We pray all these things as a family in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You waving? Love it. Love you guys. We, uh, as a church family, got them uh, a gift. Kenneth has uh, joined the dark side. He drinks coffee now, which I don't know how he's made it this long in ministry without drinking coffee, but he just started, so we got him some supplies for drinking coffee. <laughs> In 1964, well before uh, many of you in this section were around, um, a show debuted on the CBS network that would go on to run for 98 episodes. And the show grew in popularity during the 70s and the 80s. It was created and produced by a man named Sherwood Short. Say that five times fast. And little did he know that when he created this TV series that, that the characters of his show would become kind of cultural icons. Can anyone guess what show I'm referring to? Ooh, first service got it, so you guys lose. Um, I was going to play the theme music. It would have given away right away. Gilligan's Island is the show I'm referring to, Gilligan's Island. This series, if you're not familiar with it, it follows the adventures of seven castaways uh, who are trying to survive on an island where they're shipwrecked. And most of the episodes revolve around these seven different characters kind of battling with each other as they're trying to leave the island. Now, you may recognize the show, even if you weren't around when it was created, you've probably heard of Gilligan's Island, or if we were to play the music, you'd go, I know this somehow. But did you know that the seven characters in this show were intentionally crafted to represent something that has been talked about in the church for centuries? Years after the show ended, Sherwood Schwartz, the creator, admitted that each of the characters represented in his show represent one of the seven deadly sins. Now, for those of you that are fans of Gilligan's Island, you will go back and watch and go, 
whoa, there it is. Today we're kicking off a a new series that's going to take us uh, into the end of October. And the title of this series of messages is called Consumed. And we're going to examine the seven deadly sins or vices and their counterpart virtues that have been a part of Christian tradition all the way back to the 4th century. Look at somebody next to you and say, ooh. It's going to get real. I'm fascinated by history. Uh, You know that if you've been around for a while. I love understanding history, particularly Christian history. Uh, I love understanding the origin stories behind the things that we do, the traditions, the practices that we have. Why do we do what we do? I think it's actually an important thing to know. That we don't just do things because... Well, they're done. But we ask questions, why? What's the heart behind this? Why do we practice these things? What I've found in many cases in looking back through history is that human beings, we we tend to create traditions and routines in order to give life some structure, some meaning and, and purpose. But often what we create, these traditions, these rituals, over time they end up taking on kind of a their own way, right? We de- they develop a life of their own. And I think seven deadly sins is a good example of this. Somewhere in an Egyptian desert in the fourth century, a monk by the name of Evagrius Ponticus wrote down what he called eight evil thoughts. And it was really his personal journey. He's, he's a monk. He's, he's isolated. He's trying to see God. And he was writing down his personal thoughts about some of the things that he struggled with when he was trying to align his heart to follow the way of God. So it was this journal entry of, man, these are the things that are, are hang-ups for me, or struggles for me. He wrote down what pulled him off course, what tempted him to leave behind the ways of God. And it was an effort for him to kind of work out his faith. But beyond that, as a monk, he was hoping that what he wrote would be helpful to those who came after him. He wanted to be able to help younger believers in the faith understand, here are the things that can get you off track in your journey. Well, one of his followers brought these ideas, these eight thoughts, to the Western church. And in the 6th century, St. Gregory the Great arranged them in what we now know as the seven deadly sins. And from there, the popula- their popularity took off. I mean, if, if you go back and study church history, the amount of artwork and sculptures, paintings, um, movies. Has anybody seen Seven, by the way? Brad Pitt a long time ago? I don't recommend it. Uh, if you want to sleep at night. So many things have been created around the seven deadly sins, which is why it has become kind of a collective memory and understanding. When you say the seven deadly sins, some, something in you goes, I actually know this somehow. We've carried it for 1,500 years through our collective memory. Here are the seven deadly sins and their corresponding virtue. Number one, lust, chastity, gluttony, temperance, greed, charity, sloth, diligence, envy, kindness, wrath, patience, pride, humility. The seven deadly sins. On the left is the sin on the right is, is the corresponding virtue or thing to look for. Now, I want to be clear up front. 
If you open up your Bible today, you will not find this list in the Bible. This, this list was not, Jesus didn't sit down with the disciples at the Sermon on the Mount and go, hey, I got seven things for you that you're going to have to look out for. Here are the seven. That's not the story. The disciples didn't write this down as they were following Jesus. They didn't go, I've got seven things in this order you need to make sure you watch out for. They are simply a reflection on seven things that pull you off course, that pulled this monk off course that he thought was important for other people to know from following the way of God. If each of us this morning, as followers of Jesus, took just a couple of minutes, we could probably come up with a list of things that distract us from following the Lord. I mean, we could come up with a list. I'm sure there are plenty. My guess is by the end of this series, your list, whatever you would create, will match up on some level with these seven. Because they are a common experience, a lot of these are. So we're going to jump in. To the first topic, lust and chastity. Anybody glad they came to church this morning? <laughs> Parents, uh, due to the topic of this conversation, uh, I just I didn't send an email out about this, but I it's totally appropriate if you have a younger kid in here today and you don't feel comfortable um, with them being in here, it's, it's totally fine for you to step out. Uh, I will say that. Younger kids, they're going to be exposed to the conversation that I'm going to have with you in their social circles before you realize it. And I don't think there's a better place to have these conversations than in the body of Christ. We need to be having these conversations. So I'm not going to be inappropriate or graphic, but I'm going to be honest and real this morning. So we'll start with definitions. The dictionary defines lust as an intense or unbridled sexual desire or an intense longing. Chastity is defined as abstaining from unlawful sexual intercourse, or purity in conduct and intention. So those are the differences. Lust is unbridled. Chastity is, is, is purity in conduct when it comes to these desires. Based on these two definitions, the central issue is what do we do with desire? We're going to talk about sexual desire today when it comes to lust, but lust is actually bigger than sexual desire. It's any desire that we have that's unbridled, that is, that is not submitted, that is not ordered under the way of God. Any type of desire can become a problem. It can become unbridled. But the, the scriptures we're going to look at today, they're going to focus on sexual desire when it comes to lust. If you are a living breathing human, you will experience at some point in your life sexual desire. And this doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. This means that you are a human being. God actually has given desire. He's created us in this way. But each one of us, every single one of us is responsible to steward, to be responsible for those desires. Are you with me? So we all have them. That doesn't mean there's something wrong. That actually just means we're human. But what we do with our desires is what's important. We get to steward. We get to care for these. How do we deal with these intense longings? How do we maintain, as chastity is defined, purity and intention and desire? There's a couple of different methods that maybe you have witnessed 
or potentially practiced in your lifetime when it comes to desire, sexual desire. The first method is to suppress it. To, to, to shut it down, to control it, oftentimes to deny it, to act like it's not there, it's not real. Do whatever is necessary to kind of pack it down and lock it away and keep it in check. This method views sexual desire as a certain evil that, that kind of needs to be punished and put in prison. The problem is, all desires are not evil. They're actually a part of how God made us. And so to treat something as evil that God has actually created as good is to go against design. Purity culture at its worst, there's, there's good things about purity culture, but purity culture at its worst is an example of this. It's an effort to keep sexual desire suppressed instead of learning how to direct it and honor it in a way that's healthy, healthy and honors God. And the end result of, of trying to do this is actually a whole lot of striving with very little fruit or result. And maybe you can attest to this or testify to this. Suppressing sexual desire is a lot like trying to keep a beach ball under the water. Have you ever tried to do that? Or watch like a, a kid in a pool try to keep a beach ball under the water? It's, it's comical. Because it just keeps coming up. It just keeps popping up. It's almost impossible to do. Interestingly enough, some of the biggest proponents of purity culture have now walked away from their faith altogether. Or have been found to be in some secret sexual sin. Because they weren't honestly dealing with the desire. They were just trying to suppress it and act like they could control it. So that's one way to deal with it. The second method is the polar opposite of the first. Don't restrain desire at all. Let your desires direct your entire life. If it feels right, it is right. Lusting's not a problem. It's how you connect with the truest version of yourself. We seem to be living in these times currently. There's little to no effort today to order sexual desire to honor God. Desire itself has become God. Anything and everything that fuels and encourages unbridled desire is actually welcomed in the world we live in. This is how things like pornography and human trafficking become billion-dollar industries. Because when desire is God, when we make desire God, all the rules and the guidelines for actually caring and honoring people go away. So both of these methods, suppressing or just going whatever, don't seem to be producing a whole lot of fruit. So what does it look like as a follower of Jesus to take these things that God has given us, this place within us, and to submit them and steward them before him in a way that's honoring and life-giving? Let's examine two sections of Scripture. First, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4. It's near the back of your Bible. 1 Thessalonians 4. I have so many thoughts running through my head right now because 
Um, this topic is is so challenging to enter into and discuss. Um, and I can remember being in church as a young kid and trying to figure stuff out on my own. And it didn't seem like anybody was talking about the thing that was actually going on in my heart and my mind. And I felt so alone. Uh, and so my hope and prayer, I, I'm going to fumble through this, but my hope and prayer is that I'm speaking to things that are real. That are, that are real in our lives, that are real in our struggles, and that together as a community of faith, we can say, Jesus, we need you, guide us. That's, that's the goal. Paul writes to, to this city in Thessalonica, and, and this city uh, was, if you're familiar with this area, it was a lot like Everett in size and, and kind of makeup. Everett's this port city, about 100,000 people, um, diverse. There's a lot of different cultures that live within Everett. This is the city that Paul writes to. It was on this trade route. Uh, and because of that, there was, it was kind of a melting pot of religion. A lot of the cities that, that, that Paul writes to were actually very similar uh, in that, that way. So it was this religious city, but religious in the sense that, that all religious expressions were actually welcomed and celebrated. Rome was in power, so Rome was kind of this, this godlike thing that was worshipped. But there was also all of these cults in these different cities that people adhered to. One of them, uh, as an example, in Thessalonica was the Dionysian cult. Dionysian was the Greek god of winemaking, vegetation, and festivities. And so adherents, people that followed this cult, they, they would go through a series of rituals and stages that were crafted to liberate followers from any type of worldly constraint. So that they could experience true ecstasy and pleasure. And so they'd go through these, they'd sing songs and they'd do chants and they'd do dances and they would climb these hills. And the, the goal was, I'm going to get to a point where I am no longer in charge. I'm just completely surrendered to whatever emotion and desire I have. And so when Paul writes a letter to this kind of culture, <laughs> he says, hey, I understand what's going on in the world that you live in. I understand that, that when it comes to sexual desire, it's an interesting situation you got yourself in there. But listen, we're followers of Jesus. And so I want to encourage you to, rem to remember that. And, and I'm going to guide you in what it looks like to walk with him. Many who came to faith in Thessalonica came out of these cults. And so naturally they're going, what is right and wrong? I mean, they just left a cult where that, you know, all this behavior was okay. Now they're followers of Jesus and they're trying to figure out, does anything come with me into my relationship with Jesus? Friends, this is what's going on today, too. When we turn our lives over to Jesus, we're still sorting out, like, what does it mean to be fully surrendered to Jesus? And there's a lot of things we try to bring with us into our relationship with Jesus that actually harm us. And Jesus is constantly speaking to us saying, that needs to be left behind, that needs to be left behind, turn your eyes to me, I'm the one that can fulfill all of your desires. He is constantly orienting our hearts to him, saying, I'm enough. Listen to Paul's encouragement. Chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Finally then, brothers, we ask... And urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us 
how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So these first two verses, they're kind of baseline encouragement, really, for anybody. Paul says, here's what it looks like. The instruction that we received from Jesus is what we follow. And it, and it sounds like they had been doing that. So he says, nothing has changed. You've, you've gotten the teaching from Jesus. We just continue following that. Because they were probably going, well, what about this? Can we add this? And Paul's saying, I've already given the instruction. Just keep following what you already know to be true. Keep following the instruction you've already been given. We're called to live a life that pleases God, friends. A life that honors God and considers God in all areas. Which means we're not God. We don't call the shots. We're not in charge. We're submitting our lives to somebody who is. All areas. We submit to Jesus. What is your direction for us? And this is important when it comes to sexual desire because the nature of sexual desire is so strong that it can easily become the thing we submit our lives to. Paul says right off the bat, we're not called to please ourselves. We're called to honor and please God. We submit to Jesus. You with me? Continuing in verse 3, Paul gets more specific. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So Gentiles is just people that weren't Jewish people. They weren't followers of, of the Lord. He was, he's drawing the distinction for them. I know what's going on in the city. This is what you're observing. This is what you're experiencing. Here is what it means to follow Jesus. He draws a contrast. He says, the will of God for you is sanctification, which just means purity and holiness, a rightly ordered heart before God. That is, that is the will of God for you, Paul says. The ESV translates this idea into uh, being in control versus being out of control. I love how the King James Version translates verse 4. It says, possessing your own vessel. And it's the idea of, of taking care of your boat or your ship and the goods on your ship in a way that's not creating damage to other boats and other ships. That visual is, is amazing, right? I just was on a boat this week. We left out of Oak Harbor Marina, and we got in late. It was, the sun was starting to go down. And I was thinking about this as I'm reading this text and studying this, because, like, what you have to do to make sure you're not destroying everything around you when you're bringing a boat into harbor is amazing. I was stressed. I wasn't even driving. I was, like... <laughs> freaking out. And I mean, the guy that was driving the boat was so precise and so intentional about every move. And he got his boat into the harbor safely. Imagine if my friend just decided, ah, it doesn't really matter. Full speed ahead. And just flew into the harbor as fast as he could. Imagine the destruction that would happen. That is not possessing your vessel. That is not being in charge of your life in a way that, that actually honors the things that are around you, the people that are around you. Paul says, be in charge of the boat that you're driving. Don't let the boat drive you. 
Verse 6. He expounds upon it. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. matter, Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. Who gives his Holy Spirit to you. That adds some significant weight. Sorry. Oh, it is up there. That adds some significant weight. (laughs) Paul is saying, okay, I'm offering this encouragement, but at the end of the day, guess what? We all stand before the Lord. Just consider that. I mean, that's kind of how he ends this section. Just consider that. One more stop. Turn to Matthew 5. We're going to go one more text. Matthew chapter 5. Paul, in the beginning of what we just read, says, follow the teaching of Jesus on this matter. So what is the teaching of Jesus on the matter of lust? Thank you for asking. Here's what he says. Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Which is awesome. If you are new to to Jesus or new to the church, I would recommend reading Matthew 5 through 7 over and over and over again for a while. Because when Jesus came to this earth and he started teaching, when he started his ministry, Matthew 5 to 7 is the most concentrated section of his teaching alone that we have. And he covers everything in Matthew 5 through 7. He gives teaching about anger and lust and marriage. He gives he gives instruction about everything. And in it, he talks about lust. Matthew 5, starting in verse 27. This is Jesus speaking. He says, You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Uh, If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Everyone take a deep breath. This is pretty direct. But Jesus is addressing, and he does this, he says this a lot, right? He, he does this, this phrase, you've heard it said, but I say, he's taking the law, he's taking their understanding of the law, and he's teaching the heart of the law. So he's addressing in this text, he's addressing kind of the, it's not that bad kind of mentality. The law that the Jewish people knew well, and that they were confident in, was that adultery was bad. Everybody knows adultery is bad. It just, it's not good. And as long as we're not committing adultery, then we're obeying the law, and God is pleased, and God is honored. Jesus says, it's much deeper than that. It's deeper. It's a heart issue, actually. And if the heart is not surrendered and submitted, it will eventually lead to breaking the law, and adultery will actually happen down the road. So, you can seem like everything's really good. Oh, I didn't commit adultery. I'm doing great. 
But there could be a ticking time bomb on the inside that at some point it's going to explode and wreak havoc. Are you with me? This is what he's talking to. And I love this about Jesus. He doesn't talk to surface level issues. He doesn't talk about what's on the outside. He's constantly speaking to the heart of the matter. Why? Because he doesn't want us to live captive. He doesn't want us to live chained. or restra- He doesn't want us to live burdened by sin and things that separate us from him. And so he doesn't say, oh yeah, it's totally fine. I can see that no one's committing adultery here. You're all lusting. But no, he says, he says let's deal with the heart issue. Let's deal with the heart. What's being fostered in the secret? What's happening under the surface? The sneaky thing about lust is that it manifests in the dark. It it happens in the secret. The desires of our heart are exactly that. The desires of our heart, they're hidden. They're not on public display. Can you imagine if you walked into church this morning... And like everything that's inside here was projected on a screen for everybody to see. Do you know what would happen? We would walk in and go, we need Jesus. That's the point. That is what happens every Sunday. (laughs) There is so much gunk that's on the inside that we're bringing to Jesus saying, restore and redeem me because I need you. I can't save myself. I need a savior. And I'm not it. You are. So I worship you. That's, that's church. So, so like if you're newer to church and you think it's about just looking nice on a Sunday, you're missing the point of church. Church is we're broken people that need a savior. And we worship him because he saw us in our broken, messed up place and said, I'll give my life for this person because I made them. So he sees you. He knows the desires of your heart. He knows the desires of your heart that are ordered to honor him. And he knows the desires of your heart that are disordered. And he looks upon you with love. And says, "What's what you're carrying in a wrong way. Listen, I've forgiven you. I love you. It's okay. Because the crazy thing about walking with Jesus is sometimes you feel like you can't bring to Jesus all your stuff. Friends, that's more of a reflection of the church, the body of Christ, than it is Jesus. Are you with me in saying the things that we are working out as human beings, sometimes we think, that must be what God is like. Jesus stands above what's happening here. And he's good and he's kind and he's gracious and he's loving, he's forgiving, he sees you and he loves you. I'm getting so off track, but on track at the same time. Come on. When I was 12, I've shared this with the church before. When I was 12, I got exposed to some material that no 12-year-old should see. Okay? I was 12 years old. My friend, I was over at my friend uh, Jeff, and, and he lived out in the woods. His family were all hunters, and he took me out into the woods where his brother's hunting cabin was, and he gave me a magazine. And I, I was 12, and I was a very late bloomer, so I, I was confused. The entire, like, what I was seeing was not computing. I had no desire to see what I was seeing, but I, but it was, I was exposed to it. 
Friends, it messed me up. It messed, it absolutely messed me up. I've spent a good portion of my life trying to untangle from the disordered desires that came from that moment when I was 12. Now, I know I'm speaking to people in the room because I've been pastoring for 15 years now. The number of conversations that I've had that are almost verbatim the same thing is, is unbelievable. The percentages, they've done surveys of churches that say that 60, 70, 80% of people in a church are wrestling through these things in the secret. I don't need to explain the details, but today we're living in a battlefield when it comes to our sexuality and our desires. Battlefield. What's promoted, what's, what's celebrated, what, what is honored in our culture, what this is okay. I mean, the things that are presented to us as this is what life looks like. What you have access to with the click of a button or the press of a finger on a phone, the thing that... Uh, on a, on a phone in your pocket. P- parents in the room, oh man, can I encourage you as, as a, tw- from my 12-year-old self to my 39-year-old self, now who has kids that I'm starting to have these conversations with, we have an important responsibility right now. We get to steward those who come after us to understand what it means to be a sexual being before God. And if you're not having these conversations very young, somebody else is. You're going to get discipled. It's just going to be in the way of following and honoring Jesus, or they're going to be discipled with what the world has to offer. That's a choice that we have to make. We have to engage. Is it uncomfortable? Yeah, it's so weird. It's so weird. Come up here and preach this message. (laughs) It's super weird, but can I tell you, it's worth leaning into the weirdness of it for the sake of our children. I, I don't... And, and, and if, if, if it happens to my son, I'm going to be present with him as present as I can be as he walks through it and struggles through it. But I'm going to do everything I possibly can to teach my kid what it means to be the Lord's and to honor what God has given him. And, and to teach him what, what is good and healthy for him and what is not. And to create a space for my son that when he does get exposed, because it's going to happen. I'm sorry, it just will. Somebody's going to show my son something he shouldn't see. And he's going to be like, I don't know what to do with this. I pray that my relationship with my kid is, is in such a way that my son feels comfortable coming and talking to me about it. Can we be a place, a community of faith, that's actually that for everybody else? That we can actually come to each other with our stuff and say, Ah, this feels weird. I'm confused. I'm frustrated. Maybe you're in it right now and you're depressed and you're discouraged and you've been battling it your whole life and no one's talked to you about it. Can I tell you, friends, Jesus can heal you. I can testify to that. But you won't be healed in isolation. You won't be healed in secret. You actually have to bring your stuff to the service. It's in community that we're restored.
So, two teachings on lust. <laughs> Paul says, maintain the order of your ship. Keep it submitted to God. Jesus says, don't play around with lust. Cut it out of your life because it will destroy you and your relationships. Sexual desire is not something to leave unrestrained and it's not something to ignore. In fact, it's the opposite of unbridled desire. Sexual desire is meant to be bridled. <laughs> it's meant to be ordered. And when it is, the way God has designed it, it is the greatest gift. When it comes down to it, lust is actually sexual lust and all kinds of lust. It's this grasping for something to fill an emptiness inside of us. And that emptiness within us is this desire for connection and belonging, to be seen, to be known, to be loved, to be accepted. Like, we all desire that. So we long for it, and when we don't experience it in life, we find things to kind of fill that void, and they never work. Jay Stringer wrote a book called Unwanted about sexual restoration. He says this, Lust exposes your demand to be filled, but if you listen to your lust, it will reveal a holy desire for belonging. The journey out of unwanted sexual behavior begins by recognizing that your struggles may be the most honest dimension of your life. Your sexual struggles reveal your wounds, but they also reveal the trafficked longings of your heart. All of us have a longing to go back to the beginning in the garden before sin, where we were naked and ashamed before one another and before God. And we were, we were a part of a family where there was no fracture, no brokenness. We're, we all long for that. That's what the deeper longing is. And we look forward to the future when that will be completely restored and we'll have that again in Jesus. Anybody excited for that? Unfortunately, between now and then, it's easy to fall for the shortcuts that promise connection. There's things constantly put in front of us that we think, maybe this will fill my empty soul. But when you begin to engage in it, it actually just wrecks your soul. And you feel more disconnected than you were at the beginning. True connection that fulfills our desires, it takes time and work and vulnerability. True life is experienced with bridal desire. And Jesus this morning, he knows us. He knows our hearts. He's aware of your heart and my heart. And his plan for us is to rightly order our hearts. Anybody need help? Anybody need Jesus to help them rightly order their heart this morning? Come on. He calls us to leave behind lust and unhealthy desires and to pursue meaningful, authentic relationships in Christ. Will we choose to follow him today? Worship team, you guys can come as a close. I want to offer... Um, maybe, we'll, maybe next year we should do like a 12-week series on this one. Uh, it's, it's a lot to cover in a short amount of time. There are a lot of resources. I will say this. I'm going to offer some books to you. Books will not save you. Jesus saves you. So these, these books could be helpful as you process your journey. And they'll, they'll point you to Jesus. Like It'll help you understand and give you language for it. But here's some books that I've, I've read and others have read that I want to submit to you. If you're in this place or you have a friend, maybe you have a friend. You know, it's your friend's issue. Uh, 
Take a picture for your friend. Surfing for God, discovering the divine desire beneath sexual struggle, unwanted, how sexual brokenness reveals our way to healing, addiction and grace. If it's at a level where it's like, I'm so trapped, this is an addiction, this is a great book on addiction. Uh, Dr. Gerald May, Love and Spirituality and the Healing of Addictions, and The Soul of Shame, Retelling the Stories We Believe About Ourselves. This topic is, is so fascinating because shame, shame is, uh, the, the enemy of our soul uses shame to keep us in the secret. When Adam and Eve made a mistake in the very beginning, what did they do? They hid. They went and hid. Can you really hide from God? No. What did God do? He went and found them out. He, he went and searched them out. He continues to do that. Shame tries to keep you in the dark. It keeps you hidden. It makes you think, ah, nobody can know about this. There will not be healing as long as you're hiding. So we need to press into community. We need, that's why we do groups. That's why we do a lot of things in the church is to, to join us together in Christ because when we come together in Christ, His Spirit is at work to restore and to heal us. What does that look like for you this fall? I'm going to pray for us because the children's team is going to kill me. <laughs> God, thank you so much for your grace uh, on us today, for your mercy, for your forgiveness that you are our Savior and our healer. That you're the one that wired us and, and gave us these wonderful desires that, that there's a way to walk with you that honors you and honors one another. We desire, God, our passion and our hope. And, and my prayer this morning is that we would allow you to be Lord of our lives. And that we would leave behind the things that destroy us. Teach us how to live in this kind of community, Jesus. For your name's sake and to bring you all the glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. Will you stand as we close in worship here?